0: Uh, At any rate, my name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. We'll be coming primarily out of Ephesians chapter 3 today, but we're going to dabble a little bit in John 17. But before we get there, I need to tell you how impressed I am with you guys. Because I see you guys wearing jerseys here, and well, a lot of the teams that you're representing are awful. (laughs) Like, you guys are no, you have no fear of suffering. Did you see Isaac, the drummer? He was wearing a Jaguars jersey. You want to talk about suffering? And that, that tells me that, that there's uh, some of us in here that are built for the long haul. And, uh, and you are proud, proud to suffer, which, if you follow Jesus, you will. So, but we will suffer for uh, a prize far greater than any trophy. So with that said, we're going to uh, dig into our third week of the Blueprint series. If you have not grabbed the study guide yet, today is a perfect day to do that. We'll have it online for those of you guys watching us online. Some of you may be looking at this go, oh yeah, that's the thing I picked up a week ago and did... Two days in and haven't picked it up since and some of you are like, oh man, I missed the last two weeks and I don't get it. Uh, Maybe I'll just catch it on the next go around. I would like to pause your thinking right there. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. This isn't a shame tool. This is a tool for connecting with a savior that wants to connect with you. I promise. Doesn't matter if you're behind. Doesn't matter if you're ahead. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter six. Our Savior did not die so we could feel shame. He died so we could connect with him. And that is the purpose of this. So no matter where it is, find it, dust it off, and dig right back in where you left off. Uh, As is our custom, we're going to pray it up before we dig in and ask God to bless us in this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you that the word and the spirit are enough. As we go through your scriptures today, let us see what you need us to see, let us hear what you need us to hear, and let us be a family that understands the truths that bind us together. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So I, uh, I've been called in my life a little bit of a pessimist, which is something that I don't agree with. Uh, I prefer the term realistic optimist. I prefer, I prefer that term. Uh, Because I find, and this may be a coping mechanism, I'm not telling you this is healthy, but I like to set my expectations maybe a a little bit lower because like most of us, I like to be presently surprised when I get more than I expected and not disappointed when I expected more than I get. That's a good feeling, right? This is is how I navigate life. Again, that's not biblical, that's Windsorical, so you don't... That's, that's different. Uh, I remember this one time. This has always stuck out in my mind. And this is one of those odd family stories that kind of works into families, right, and gets told and retold and retold so that there's still truth in there. But sometimes the legend outpaces the moment. And this is definitely one of those stories in our family. Uh, we lived in Gainesville, Florida for a large portion of our lives. And there's a small Italian restaurant named Reseda's and we went there for the first time. It's, it's my mother, my father, my brother, and I. And I want to say I was in middle school, which probably meant Brian was either just going into middle school or just out. And those of you that have a couple of uh, tween-age, teenage boys understand that them guys got to eat. You understand that. So you go out to a restaurant, we're looking at the menu, and they're like, you can order the quarter calzone, the half calzone, or the full calzone. Well, we got two teenage boys at the table, so we ordered the full calzone. Little did we know that this thing was gonna need an entire another table. Like, they brought out a table from the back to set this bad boy on. Like Like, it's gigantic. And so what do me and my brother do in a restaurant full of people whoa, like we're making a scene, we're making a thing. And you can just see, I wasn't even looking at my mother, but I was looking at my father and you can just see his eyes like, uh, and his face just go bright red because he is like super embarrassed that the entire restaurant is now looking at the foolish family that ordered enough food to feed 200 people, but just has four people sitting at the table. Brian and I did not share his embarrassment. This was the greatest thing we'd ever seen at this point in our lives. Like we were maybe a little afraid this calzone was going to eat us, but we were very ecstatic. So we cut off the piece. You cut out, we all four have served and we still have a giant calzone, but the calzone was the gift that kept on giving. Like that was like four lunches. And you guys know Italian food gets better with age, man. This thing just got better and better and better. So this calzone far exceeded my expectations. And yes, we did go back. And yes, we ordered that giant calzone multiple times. Because guys, we like it when things exceed our expectations. We like it when the underdog wins. We like it when the tax return is bigger than we thought it was. We like when things exceed our expectations. And this is the pull of God because God constantly and consistently delivers more than we expect him to. This is our journey as followers of Jesus is continually walking in expecting one thing and getting far and away more than we ever dared to expect. Our best example is in the person of Jesus, right? The Jews were looking for a savior. In fact, this is baked into their culture. It's a defining aspect of who they are. When God called Abram out of the land of Ur, he promised that salvation and the Messiah would come through Abram's line. Over time, Abram's family was invited to live in Egypt. They were in Egypt roughly 400 years. And during that time, the invitation must have ran out because they became slaves in Egypt. And in that time, they went from a a tribe of a few hundred to like a large people of over a million in those 400 years. And when Moses led them out, he walked them up to a land of Canaan where Joshua eventually settled them there. And this tribe became a nation all the while looking for the one that would deliver them. When we fast forward to the time of Jesus, we find this nation living under oppressive Roman rule. Roman, Romans had occupied the land and were, while the Jews could still practice religious rites, they had to pay heavy taxes. They had to do certain things that the Romans asked them to do. And they were not free and they chafed under this. As you can imagine, this was not very popular in Jewish circles. So when Jesus appears on the scene, they miss the Messiah. Despite praying and despite memorizing scripture and despite him telling and performing miracles, they miss the one that they had literally been waiting for for over 2,000 years. Why? Because they didn't expect what they got. What they expected was a Savior to come free them from Roman rule. They expected their Messiah to come say, hey, Romans, you're out of Jerusalem. We run this now. Why? Because that was the immediate problem facing them. I'm sure their thought process was something like this. What is the best thing that God could do for us right now as a nation? Well, he could kick these oppressors out, give us back our freedom and dignity. That is what a good God would do. And we serve a good God. And so that is what a good God is doing. So they're looking for this savior from Roman oppression. And we see this evidence in several recorded conversations where disciples are jockeying for position saying, hey, when you establish your kingdom, can I sit on your right and he sit on your left? Like, can we have positions of power when you throw the Romans out of Jerusalem? And he comes and he says, guys, you've missed the whole point of this. And he tries to explain it to them and they don't get it because they didn't even have a category for what he was about to do. He didn't come just to free them from Roman oppression. He came to free them from death. And that's significantly better and much, much more difficult. The biggest problem facing First century Israelites was not that they had to pay heavy taxes or ask permission to do things. The biggest problem facing first century Israelites is that if they died without Jesus, they were separated from God for eternity. So they had a very small picture of why Jesus Christ came, and so they missed him. But so do we. Our biggest problem facing us is that we have a tragically small view of an unimaginably great God. Our plight is just like the Israelites. We are stuck on the immediate need and we can't see the greater purpose that God is coming to accomplish because while they were looking for a savior for them at this time, Jesus Christ came to rescue all of humanity, not one specific, specific people, all of humanity from the rebellion that separated us from him. Because that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that you and I have done wrong. We have lied and then got angry at people that have lied to us, thus demonstrating that our own hearts, our own knowledge of right and wrong testifies against us that we have broken a moral code. And when you have done wrong, you stand correctly judged by a perfect God. But God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement, sends his son, Jesus Christ, to ultimately die on a cross be buried and raised by the Holy Spirit that we may know him. We, all of humanity, may know him. That's a great big purpose. And that great big purpose at times get lost with all the little mini purposes that pop up in our mind because let's be honest, the greatness of God is impossible to understand. It's impossible to understand, so we kind of dumb it down, and we make it so that we can understand it, and when we do so, we diminish his greatness and his glory and his power all for the purpose of wrapping our mind around it. We were never meant to wrap our mind around the God that we chase. We were never meant to fully understand it. I contend that if we could understand it, he would not be worthy of worship, I only want to follow a God that I can't comprehend because if I can comprehend him, to be honest, he ain't all that great. So the Christianity at its essence is a journey of spiritual revelations where whatever we compare God to suddenly seems pale and crumbles by comparison. That is the essential journey of Christianity. It's spiritual revelation after spiritual revelation. Whatever we were boxing in God with, we go, wow, was I wrong? I had the privilege of seeing one of these moments firsthand this week. My wife and I have a son named Ezra Jude, and we're just driving home from school. I don't even remember where we were driving to. But my son gave me kind of this statement question. He goes, dad, God could defeat Godzilla, King Kong, and all the other monsters. Now, it wasn't a question. It had like a hint of a question in there, but it was a statement. And I said, oh, yeah, easily, with just a word. And Ezra went, yeah. Yeah. This excited him because think about what's happening here. In his framework, what is more powerful than what he just named as a seven-year-old? He just thought of the most powerful beings he could think of. And then he conceived of a God that could wipe them away like that. That's, that's us. And sometimes our kids do it better than us. But that's us conceiving of what we could possibly compare God to and then going, yep, that ain't it. And then being really excited that that ain't it. Going like, oh, yes, God is good. And it's with this backdrop that I want to enter Ephesians chapter 3. Because it's with this backdrop we get permission to wrestle, not to understand, but we get permission to wrestle with how great our God is and what he has made us to be. So start with me in Ephesians 3. We're going to start in verse 2, where Paul writes, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Remember, revelation is a necessary part of this equation. The Holy Spirit that marks us as his will interpret the mind of God and revelation is necessary because we can't reason to God. We just covered that. He's too big. He's too smart. He's too awesome. He's too powerful. We're not gonna figure it out. We have to be given it. So this stuff comes through revelation. As I have already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And at this point, I'm like, all right, yeah, you already told it was revelation. It was revealed to you. Now it's been revealed to other people. Can you please reveal it to me now? The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. The revealed mystery is that salvation and the Messiah are not just for Israel. They're for the Gentiles, which is everyone that is not Israeli. So Paul is saying the mystery that has been revealed here is that salvation is for everyone, which would have been shocking. In first century Palestine, because the law did make allowances for Jewish converts, right? If you were a Gentile, you could come, you could observe the rituals, and you could become Jewish. And in becoming Jewish, you are now under God's covenant or promise. But Paul says, no more need for that. Paul says, the Messiah has come for all, Jew and non Jew. Thus, salvation is universal, widening the Israelites' concept of who their God was and what he came to do, and you're looking at me right now justifiably because you're looking at me going, we already know that. And if we already know that, how can that be a revelation? Because let's be honest, that's a revelation from 2,000 years ago. Chances are, if you're following Jesus Christ, you already believe that salvation is from everyone. But I promise you this revelation is as shocking now as it was 2,000 years ago, let's take a look at it with our 21st century eyes. Paul says that salvation is for everyone. So he says it's for the Republicans and the Democrats. Paul says it's for people in life in prison. It's for the felons. Paul says it's for the people that beat other people. Paul says it's for the person that hurt your kid. Paul says it's for the person that you hate. Paul says it's for the person that's so self-righteous they think they're any better than the people that I just listed. Paul says salvation is for the people that we don't think deserve salvation. Paul says salvation is for the people that we would separate from and we would withhold God's love from. It's a little bit more shocking when we look at it with our 21st century eyes, isn't it? Because it's very easy for us to say, yeah, salvation is for everyone. But when we really dig down into what that means, when we really get specifically and we start looking at people in our lives and go salvation is for him, salvation is for her, salvation is in our biases surface. What's buried in our hearts surfaces and we go, oh, oh. Salvation really is for everyone? That's what Paul says. See, there are only two great classifications in humanity. We like to make sense of our world by dividing it up. We know what's tall because we know what's short. We know what's fast because we know what's slow. But there are only two great classifications in humanity. Those who need Jesus and those who know him. Those who need Jesus need us who know him to lead them to him. Salvation is for everyone. And for those that do know him, take a note of one phrase that it's easy to gloss over on the back end of that scripture where he says, we are members of one body. Do not sleep on that line because it's a line Jesus uses a lot. He often compares those who believe who he says he is to a body. Because in this, we find our unity. This is what he says. I'm part of you. You're part of me. We're a family. How we behave affects one another. How we behave affects how those who need Jesus see us. In fact, Jesus prized unity. He prayed for it at the Last Supper. This is where he gathered up all his disciples and went into the upper room and they observed the Passover feast for one last time before he walked to his crucifixion. And this is where he instituted communion where we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember what he's done for us. And in that meeting, the final meeting with disciples, he levels a magnificent prayer for them. You can read the rest of it in John 17. We're gonna focus on the back end because while he prayed for them to be in the world but not of the world, And while he prayed for them to be able to do all these things and keep the faith and remember who they are, he also prayed for you and me. In this prayer, in John 17, Jesus Christ, our Savior, prayed for you and me. He says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. We believe in Jesus Christ because the apostles believed in Jesus Christ and spread his message. This prayer is for us. So much of the Bible was written to us. Some of it was written for us. This is a part that was written for us. He prays for you and me. That all He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays that for those of us that know Jesus would be as unified with one another as he is with the Father. And he was so unified to the Father, he willingly took on the cross. This is the standard of unity that he puts forth, and it is scary. This isn't we're family, so we sit at the Thanksgiving table and pretend to ignore each other till we can go our separate ways for another year of unity. This is perfect unity. He doubles down on it in the next verse. I have given them glory that you have gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity. Now, I'll admit, I don't believe that that's possible this side of heaven. But what you heard me just say is very limiting to God. What you heard just come out of mouth is me saying, I can't conceive of a God so powerful that I experience this before I die. So now I'm letting my biases show. But this is what he asked for complete unity. Why? Why does he ask for complete unity? Right there. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He prays for unity. Because in both of these passages, he says, the world will come to know that I am who I say I am based on how unified you are. Unity is a core aspect of our identity. And from the mouth of Jesus Christ, in a prayer for us, he claims that our unity is effective in drawing people to the salvation that is for everyone. He doesn't pray that we give to the poor, though we should. He doesn't pray that we read our scriptures, though we should. He doesn't pray that we sin a lot less, though we should. He prays that you and I would be unified, that a world would look at us and go, what do you have that I don't have? That a world in need would look at what we have and go, Can I get some of that? From God's mouth to our ears, our unity will draw people and our disunity will push them away. This is how prized unity is. We jump back to Ephesians chapter three where Paul continues saying, for this reason, he says, because salvation is for everyone, Because there is not a dividing line where my love stops. I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. He says, because salvation is for everyone and because we're all in this mess together, I pray for you guys that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power and through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you... Being established and rooted in love, pause. Paul reminds us that we have been rooted and established in love. We all know that foundations are important. You'd almost rather have any other structural problem than a foundation problem. Because it doesn't matter how tall the building, how magnificent, how innovative. If the foundation's bad, the building's coming down. And when the building comes down, the bigger the building, the more tragic the event, the more people are going to get hurt. Foundation is important. The tree may be beautiful, but if those roots are sick, that tree is on borrowed time. But he reminds us that we don't have a foundation problem. We are rooted and established in love. Jesus left heaven, perfect heaven, to come down to not perfect earth because he loves us. He chose to be murdered when he could have chosen to destroy his murderers because he loves us. And he's coming back to put right what we made wrong both on this earth and in our hearts because he loves us. We are rooted. Our faith is saturated with love. The core of our faith, the being, it's an attribute of God. John says God is love. Why do we trade that foundation for a foundation of obligation? Why do we follow God out of a sense of obligation? Well, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I'm going to need to do these things. No, lies. A life of obligation may look like a life of love, but they could not be farther apart Obligation asks, what is the minimum I must do to get credit for this assignment? Obligation asks, what is the littlest amount of time and effort I may be put in to appease you, God? Where love asks, how far do you want me to go? Love asks, I will put myself to the hazard. I will hurt for you. Not because you demanded of me, because I want it. And man, if that's not more powerful. Which one excited you? Which one when you watch a movie and you get the the goosebumps on your arm? Is it the hero that served because, well, I guess I better go to battle today? (laughs) Or is it the one that charged in, thinking of the one he or she loves? putting themselves to the test at great sacrifice. I don't need an answer to that question. I already know it. That is the root of our faith. Obligation requires. Love inspires. Think of the life that God has called us to. He fulfilled the law, but he also ratcheted it up. He said crazy things like, great, you love your friends. Everyone loves their friends. I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can't obligation your way to that. You can fake it. But it's not real. It's not rooted. He said to people who were rooted in obligation, great, You give to the priest out of your spice rack. You tithe of your dill and your mint and your cumin. It would have been much better if while you were doing your obligations, you wouldn't have neglected the greater things of our faith. Faith, mercy, love, justice, faithfulness. When you hear all those things, really tough to quantify How do you quantify mercy? Much easier to quantify, did I read my Bible today or not? Our lean towards obligation is a way of wrapping our arms around this faith and making it easier for us to stand. And when we do that, we gut it of everything that was beautiful and important to it. Because eventually obligation will tire you out and you'll be like, this isn't working for me and you will leave the loving relationship because it's rooted in obligation. It's not rooted in love anymore. You can't do the things that God wants for us rooted in obligation. And that should scare us. And that's a great place to be because where we come to the end of ourselves, we often begin our journey with God. And when we say, I cannot do that, what we're also saying is, Lord, help me do that. And admission is the first stage of recovery. To admit that you cannot love the way that Jesus has laid out, that we cannot be unified the way that Jesus has laid out without complete reliance on revelation by the Holy Spirit is where our faith journey begins. Paul continues in verse 18. He prays that those of us rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He prays that we would be able to grasp, to able to to take brief hold of, the love that is incomprehensible. He continues and said, this love surpasses knowledge. You're not gonna reason to it. You're not gonna figure it out. It's not gonna make sense to you. So I pray that God shows it to you and that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I don't know how to create that love, but I know where it comes from. And the admission that we are powerless is the surrender of obligation and the first step in living out our identity that is rooted in love. He continues and closes up Ephesians chapter three by saying, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is within us, according to the Holy Spirit that he has marked us with, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, Amen. Now, as we leave chapter three and move into chapter four, we need to keep the lessons that Paul taught us about who we are on the front of our brain because he spent one, two, and three drilling into us who we are in Christ Jesus. Family, sons and daughters, inheritors, saved by grace, pursued by him, Rooted in love, because in 4, 5, and 6, he's gonna talk about what a life rooted in love looks like. And if we focus on 4, 5, and 6 without remembering 1, 2, and 3, we'll move right back to the sense of obligation and rely on our ability, which is fictional, to figure God out instead of relying on the Holy Spirit to radically transform our hearts. None of the love that we just described in Ephesians chapter three is natural for us. None of that bend is natural for us. Our nature is to protect ourselves. Our nature is to divide. Our nature is to point fingers. Our nature is to carve out a world that makes sense and the kingdom of heaven does not make sense on our terms. We must always keep the lessons taught about our identity in full and prominent view as we attempt to navigate the life of love that Christ Jesus has laid out for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that though our love is inconsistent at best and dormant at worst, you still call us yours and we are still yours. We ask for revelation by the Holy Spirit that delivers who we are in you, and that we would lay down our facsimile of a Christian life and pick up the life of love to which you have called us. We ask, Father, that through your great love we would perceive it and we would give this great love to the world around us, Father, and by us living out our identity, those who are without you would find you. We ask that we would be rooted so that when trials come, we stand against the strong winds that would divide us from you and cling tightly to the truth and the only good that exists. We thank you for giving us your son, and we thank you for giving us your spirit. Amen.